Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 3rd, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco in the United States. And as always, it seems America is in moral confusion, perhaps even moral war. The headlines on the New York Times, as well as all the other leading newspapers today about the Supreme Court leak about whether or not abortion should be legal or not in the United States, lots of demonstrations. And on top of that, a moral debate about whether or not uh, information should have been leaked from the court. Of course, everybody is out now demonstrating from one position or another. And it seems as if people are failing, especially when it comes to abortion, to be able to actually talk to one another in a coherent, perhaps philosophical way. So what are we to be, what are we to do in all this? Uh, my guest today is a professional philosopher and he has a new book out, Nasty, Brutish and Short, Adventures in Philosophy with My Kids. It presents, I think, in some ways, kids, young kids as being perhaps a little bit more skilled in thinking philosophically than us grown-ups are a little set in our ways. And Scott is joining us from Iron Arbor today. Scott, um, I'm not sure if you've had the opportunity to talk to your two boys about this. You're, you you build the, the narrative of Nasty, Brutish and Short around your two sons. But do you think, given this intense moral confusion in America about abortion, children might be better suited to be able to discuss it in a coherent, responsible, quote-unquote, adult way? So uh, that's a really great question. I think children are open-minded and inquisitive, and as you said um, in your introduction, not set in their ways, not dug into a political team the way lots of adults are. And so I think there's um, they're very frequently um, uh, you know, able to approach issues uh, in a fresh way and to consider arguments um, from lots of different directions. So I haven't actually talked to my kids um, about the recent development, uh, you know, which which uh, which came last night after their bedtime, and they've been uh, and they've been at school. But um, uh, you know, I absolutely think that uh, you could have both kinds of conversations with them—a conversation about sort of the morality of uh, of whoever leaked it, but then the the underlying question. Um, that's involved in debates about abortion. So this has to be the, the cutest philosophy book of the year. I don't sure I necessarily mean that in an altogether positive way, but it's, it's a book about your relationship with your children and how they taught you perhaps to philosophize or, or you taught them. It, it's a wonderfully engaging book. Tell me a little bit more about the process of writing the book and the conversations you had with your kids, which represent the, the foundations of its narrative. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm glad that you found the book engaging and uh, and enjoyed reading about the kids. I when I when Most of the conversations that are, um, that are in the book, they weren't things uh, 
the more conversations that I had with the aim to with the, with a view towards writing a book. So shortly after um, we had our first child, Rex is the older one. Maybe when he was a year or two old, I started to notice that I was talking about him a lot when I would teach. And you know, say I was like, you know, I teach philosophy in a law school, and say with the topic of the day was going to be theories of punishment. I would start off my class by telling uh, the students about something that Rex had done and ask them how they thought uh, how they thought we ought to respond to it. And the class would come alive. People really love to talk about kids and the question of like what's an appropriate punishment or an appropriate consequence for this misbehavior was immediately engaging. And we'd be having a conversation that was about the philosophy that we'd read, even though we hadn't yet um, started to talk about the you know, the, the grown up adult articles that I had assigned as homework. And so, you know, just kind of organically, um, I, you know, I start to realize my kids are doing things that are philosophically interesting and they're really interested in philosophy. And my students at school are really interested in what my students are doing and what, sorry, what my kids are doing and what my kids are saying. And, uh, and that's working in a college classroom. Maybe it was something that's interesting to a broader audience. The title is wonderful, Nasty, Brutish and Short, Adventures in Philosophy with My Kids. We've done a number of shows on Nasty, Brutish and Short uh, with David Runciman in particular, Cambridge mm -hmm. University political philosopher on Thomas Hobbes, who he considers the foundational thinker of modernity. The funny thing, though, um, Scott, about Hobbes is I'm not sure you would even consider him a philosopher, would you? Oh, no, I would definitely consider Hobbes uh, a philosopher. I teach Hobbes in my class. I'm a philosopher of law. I'm guessing, though, you're not a big admirer of Hobbes. Would that be fair? Um, I, my, uh, I, I, yeah, I think that's probably, well, I, I want to distinguish. I'm a big admirer of Hobbes as a philosophy. I think the books are really interesting, and I think the arguments are compelling. He doesn't take the views that I take about questions in political philosophy. So I would think of myself as a critic, but being a critic is consistent with being an admirer. So, um, you know, Hobbes thought that, um, you know, uh, he, he, he thought that we, we all needed to cede our rights to an absolute sovereign um, who would have um, uh, absolute authority over our, all of our lives. That was the only way to avoid the kind of political conflict that um, was prevalent during his life. He lived through the English Civil War. And, and I think history has proven him wrong about that, uh, that um, many of the constitutional democracies around the world that have limited government rather than unlimited government um, have, are, have been quite robust and they protect people's freedoms um, better, than, uh, better than the alternative. So I think of myself as a critic, but nevertheless, uh, an admirer of the thought. We've done a, a number of shows, not just about Hobbes, but about Hobbesian philosophy, or at least the foundation of how Hobbes thought. I think he believed that we were driven, and he certainly was driven, by fear. I'm curious, in your analysis, both as a philosopher and as a parent and in the writing of the book, do you think that kids are less fearful than adults, which is one reason why they make better philosophers? 
So I think there's a particular way in which they're less fearful that plays a role in why they have a real aptitude for philosophy. They're, they're not worried about seeming silly. They're not worried about seeming silly for asking questions like, am I dreaming my entire life? Or, um, you know, what's it like to be dead? Um, you know, like the sort of like, or why does the universe exist at all? Or how big is the universe? Kids are just, they're interested. They're trying to figure the world out. And they haven't figured out that serious people don't spend a lot of time in conversations about the possibility that they're dreaming their entire life. So I think they're willing to ask questions that um, that grownups have have left behind, not because they found answers, but because they they moved on. Uh, and so I think that really um, makes them good philosophers. They also, I think, are, are fearless, maybe in another way that's related, that um, they they don't have a they don't have a a fear of being wrong, um, and they believe in themselves that maybe they're going to come up with the answer. So I, uh, I tell a story in the book about uh, Rex when he was seven years old, and I'm walking him home from school one day. He says to me, the universe has to be infinite. And I said, well, you know, scientists disagree about that. And he said with conviction, no, it has to be infinite. And then he gave me an argument, which turns out to be an ancient argument uh, about the size of the universe. And I think if an adult in their daydreams had thought up the argument that Rex had thought of, they would keep it to themselves or they'd rush to Google to see if they were right before they shared it to anyone. So there was a kind of fearlessness that he just put himself out there, made his declaration, the universe is infinite, and then offered an argument for it. Scott, do you think one of the, the messages in the book and one of the quote unquote lessons is for parents to be more like philosophers, perhaps being a parent is rather like being Socrates with your children. I would really encourage that, actually. So, you know, Americans like to say that everyone's entitled to their opinion, but that's not the way things work in our house. If, if you've got a view, then I'm going to ask you questions about it. And if you give me answers, I'm going to question your answers. I um, relate to my kids in a lot of contexts the way that I relate to my law students. So in law school, you use the Socratic method to teach. I don't give lectures. I ask students questions, and then I question the answers they give me. And I think there's a real value to doing that with children too. One is it's actually just fun. I think people don't realize um, just how clever their their kids can be if you push them. But also, I think it's worth pushing them to make them make arguments, provide evidence for their views, and get them in the habit of of thinking carefully and thinking deeply. How, how does your wife feel about this? You know, we parent in different ways. I think, uh, you know, my wife is a social worker, and uh, and I think our kids, you know, it, it, uh, they're getting maybe uh, the best of two different kinds of worlds. Um, you know, they, they get to kind of um, sometimes adversarial, lawyerly philosopher engagement from me, and they get a really loving, supportive engagement from her. And I think uh, I think both of these are probably important for parenting. We've had a number of shows about how to bring children up. Of course, it's a very popular subject. We had one woman on the show last year talking about uh, a woman called Melinda uh, Wenner Moyer on, on how to raise kids who aren't jerks. I think mean, kids who aren't racists and sexist. She has a, a book out, How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. Do you think that the the manner of, of thinking philosophically or encouraging your, your kids to think philosophically is another way of raising kids who, who won't turn out to be jerks? Because it's always conceivable that they might grow up to have opinions quite opposite to yours. 
That's for sure. And and one thing I think is really important is I don't um, in most of the conversations I have with my kids, it's not my aim is not that they should share my views. Um, my aim is that they should be people who um, who think things through and are interested in evidence and are interested in arguments. And to get them there, I think, you know, it needs to be a kind of open inquiry and not you have to think the way I think. But I hope that um, by challenging their ideas and making them uh, and making them defend them, that uh, that you might take some steps towards raising kids who aren't assholes. So, um, you know, I say in the book that, um, you know, when your kid complains, give a suggestion, when your kid complains that something's not fair, ask them what fairness is or ask them whether it's your job to make things fair or ask them what they think would be a fair solution to the problem. And often when you get them engaged in that question, what what would actually be fair here? and get them to attend not just to their own views and their own interests, but to other people's views and other people's interests, then maybe you can um, help cultivate the habit of taking other people seriously. Scott, one of the themes you want to discuss, or you do discuss in your book in terms of getting kids to think philosophically, is the issue of authority and respect. Do you think this manner of parenting establishes a different kind of authority from a more traditional kind of parenting? So authority is what I am focused on um, as an academic. I've written a lot of articles about authority. I'm just sort of interested in the basic question. How could it ever be that one person is obligated to do what somebody else is telling them to do just because the other person said it? And parents are among the primary people that claim that kind of power, that you have to do this just because I said so. And there are definitely moments in my life when I assert that power over my children. You know, why do you have to put on your shoes? Um, you know, uh, I, I've rehearsed the actual underlying reasons many times. They're going to protect your feet. The store requires you to have your shoes on. But at some point, just you got to do it because I said so. But I try not to make that my first move. Um, and I think because I've thought a lot about authority, um, you know, I'm reluctant to make because I said so. Um, the first move in the conversation. I want my kids someday to be capable of making decisions for themselves and to make good decisions. And I want them to be in touch with the reasons I have for thinking you've got to do things like put on your shoes or study or, or, or do your homework before we watch the movie. Um, so, you know, it may be that I tell them what to do, but if they ask why, and there's time, I like to give them reasons and even be open to a conversation about it. But when there's not time, I am definitely on board with because I said so. Rex and Hank are, are pre-adolescents, right? How old are they? So Rex is just uh, just at the cusp. He's 12 now and Hank is nine. And a lot of the stories, the they're younger. The stories start really when Rex is, is one or two and uh, continue until he's 10 or 11 and Hank is uh, seven or eight. Do you think it becomes more difficult the older they become? Uh, you know, I've got kids in their late, well, 20 and 24. So I've been through the the teenage years, which don't really end when they're in their 20s. Um, are, are, do you get a sense it could become more complicated, more difficult in their teens? Yeah, I think the challenges are going to change, you know, um, you know, like was 
Let's talk about philosophy first, and then maybe you, you're probably in a better position to tell me about the challenges of parenting. The, the research suggests that kids are just spontaneously interested in philosophical questions up until somewhere between, say, seven and nine. Um, that's the point at which I think they're starting to get this kind of adolescent worry about what other people think of them. And so they're not, you know, just as forthcoming with their ideas and their arguments and their questions. But the research is also quite clear. If you ask kids philosophical questions, you know, um, past that age into their teens and beyond, you can quite easily get them to engage the conversation, right? So they're still interested. They're just keeping a lot of interest to themselves. Um, you know, I felt um, as a father really well suited to um, you know, uh, to dealing with little kids, maybe because my mother was a preschool teacher. I spent a lot of time around little kids when I was growing up. But, uh, you know, I've, I've arrived uh, with, with our older one at the stage where I think, you know, uh, in part because he's less forthcoming with how he's feeling and what he's thinking, where I think I'm not, I'm not quite sure I know how to be your dad yet. Do you, have, do you have any advice for somebody at the start of this? No, you never learn it. And it's the hardest thing. And you always fail or I always fail. I don't know. Uh, but again, I think probably requires, I mean, maybe maybe your next book should be uh, on adventures in philosophy with parents, because I think it's equally relevant. We are speaking with Scott Hershowitz, the author of a, I think it's going to be a, a big hit, Scott. It, 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 it's a lovely book to read, especially as a, for me, both as a parent and someone interested in philosophy. I think it's a wonderful read. And um, we're going to take a short break, and then I want to come back and talk a little bit more about whether there really are biases in the book and, and, and how we should and shouldn't be thinking about childhood in the 2020s. So we're going to be back with right. Scott Hershowitz, the author of Nasty, Brutish and Short, in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We're back with Scott Hershowitz, the author of Nasty, Brutish and Short. In the first half of the show, we 
talked a little bit about Hobbes and his notion of philosophy. Um, Scott, of course, the reverse of Hobbes was the um, was the uh, the Swiss French philosopher Jean Jacques Rousseau, um, whose work argued that perhaps in place of taking on knowledge in a Hobbesian or Lockean sense, um, we become less innocent and less moral as we age. I think his classic work on this was Emile. Uh, it's also manifested in his great autobiography, The Confessions. Is there a Rousseauan element to your argument that children are somehow more knowledgeable than adults? So I wouldn't say they're more knowledgeable. I think that, and I, and I wouldn't even say that they're uh, that they're better philosophers uh, than adults or better philosophers than adults can be. I think they bring a different set of skills to the table. Um, as I said before, like they're puzzled by the world and they're constantly trying to, to puzzle it out and they're not afraid of seeming silly. They're kind of fearless little thinkers. They're not as disciplined thinkers as adults. They're not as rigorous thinkers about adults and they just know less about the world. And so one of the things, um, that I'm really keen to communicate to people is part of what's joyous about talking philosophy with your kids is you each bring different skills and abilities to the table. And so I think a lot of times uh, parental conversations with kids um, are, are kind of hierarchical. You're telling your kid what to do or you're telling your kid what to think. But if you're having a conversation with your kid about um, you know, wh whether it's okay to take revenge or why the universe exists, you really can have a kind of collaborative conversation um, where you're each bringing something different to the table. And, and I would encourage people actually not to think like I'm imposing my view on my kids. So I don't think it's so much that like kids are, 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 are great, they're the best, and then, and then it's a steady decline into adulthood. I think, I think we're just different because we're at different stages of life with different abilities and different, and different knowledge. Interesting piece in The Atlantic you wrote, um, you quote the developmental psychologist Alison Gopnik, um, who, who writes, children aren't just defective adults, uh, primitive grown-ups gradually attaining our perfection and complexity. Their minds are different, but equally complex and powerful. Do you think we do a good job collectively in a cultural sense um, enabling children to, to keep that um, innocence? Do you think we need to do more, both in parental terms and in cultural terms, maintaining childhood, the innocence, the willingness to ask questions? Yeah, you know, I, um, I think I was blessed with some teachers when I was younger um, that were really... Um, focused on children and children's interests and and letting me go where my mind led. But but I also had a lot of teachers who were, were trying to march through a curriculum. And I think one thing I think is um, particularly um, stultifying about American education is like the focus on the standardized testing and the teaching to the test so that teachers really feel constrained not to respond to their kids' wonder and curiosity, but to make sure we get through whatever's, you know, the lesson plan is for the day. So we stay on track to be able to take that test that they're going to, you know, take um, uh, at the end of the year. Um, you know, I say in the book, I try to fill some of the gaps for my 
kids, which is to say I learned actually that instead of asking them, what did you do at school today, which never yields uh, an interesting answer, most of the time it doesn't even yield an answer at all, I will try to ask them, hey, what are you wondering about? What's something that you are thinking about? You get a much better conversation going on at, uh, at dinner that way, but I wish that we had a more flexible education system. And, and I know that a lot of teachers do too. They wish they had the chance um, to, uh, to find out what their kids are, are interested in and, and to build a classroom uh, around that because when, when kids are engaged in the topic, they learn so much better. I'm not necessarily accusing you of this, but I think there is a, a general sense in the culture that kids know more than us. I think it was manifest. I don't know if you've seen Richard Power's new book, Bewilderment, um, which is about a, a man and his autistic son who understands the environmental crisis somehow more intuitively than mm-hmm. grown-ups. Do you sense that that's true in our culture? Again, I mean, Powers is Powers. I'm not saying that he he's a mirror on our, our entire culture, but particularly when it comes to existential crises like the environment, do you think that many of us think that, that children get it better than adults? So I, I do think that... Um that people uh, have, have noticed the way adults have failed to respond to some of the big problems uh, in our world. And they've noticed the clarity with which, uh, with which children can see them. And I do think actually there's a reason to think sometimes that kids might have clarity um, that, uh, that grownups or especially our leaders often lack. It's because um, they, 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 they don't have a kind of um, vested interest in the status quo. Uh, in the way that lots of adults do. I, I wouldn't say that, oh, kids are more wise in general. I think that, um, you know, the title of the book is Nasty, Brutish, and Short. And I say, though my kids are um, uh, really um, uh, unbelievably cute and kind, they of course have their moments. Uh, all kids do when they're nasty and brutish and narrowly focused on themselves. And I think part of good parenting is helping sometimes to broaden their worldview. But, but I do think there's definitely something to be gained by um, uh, listening to children, uh, to their questions and concerns, and sometimes they're articulating things more clearly than adults. Um, you are a philosopher rather than a, a brain scientist, but I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I did a show last week with a, a young British woman, Rebecca Schiller, who's written a literary memoir about her own neurodivergency. It seems as if everything's up for grabs in our culture today in terms of making sense of the world. Perhaps it's no coincidence that uh, Powers' uh, child hero in bewilderment um, is autistic. Do you think that um, that resonates for, for parents in terms of us questioning the idea of the brain and many other things that were taken for granted, you know, by Hobbes and Locke and, and those empirical philosophers. Well, I mean, I think it's a wonderful thing about the world that we're replacing a lot of armchair speculation with careful scientific study. And in the course of that careful scientific study, we're finding out that um, not everyone's brain works the, the same way. And, uh, and that's a super important thing. As I said, my wife is a social worker who's done a lot of work um, with, uh, with children. And I've learned a ton from her about you know, the, the uh, child development and the, money, uh, the many different ways that it might go. But I think it's also been um, 
uh, you know, sort of the, the boom in cognitive psychology has been a real benefit to philosophy too. Um, because, you know, a, a lot of people who look the same have spent thousands of years asking themselves, uh, you know, questions and imagining that the answers they're giving are universal. So, um, you know, uh, both the sort of globalization of these conversations, but then also um, the contributions that the social sciences have made, I think, are, are really um, uh, giving us a, a much broader and deeper picture of, of, of how our minds uh, work or can work. Scott, what about the role of awe? I mean, philosophers and your version of philosophy, I think, is deeply Socratic. It requires the asking of questions. But what about awe? In Powers' book, the boy um, is awed by the universe. Uh, I did a show yesterday with the naturalist Cy Montgomery, who has a new book out on Hawks, The Hawks Way, in which she is awed by hawks, which are entirely different from us as a species. Do you think children are able to be more awed by things they don't understand, uh, particularly in the natural world than grown-ups? And is that something that we as parents, as grown-ups, should encourage, particularly if we are to, yeah. are to address our environmental crisis? So absolutely. And I think actually it's not something so much that grownups should encourage. It's something they should try and channel through their children that, um, you know, there's this quote from Bertrand Russell in the conclusion to my book where he says, look, philosophy is better at asking questions than it is at, at answering them. But it's real um, or, or one of its real values is it can help um, reveal the kind of strangeness and wonder that's lying just beneath the surface of everyday things. And uh, and I think, you know, kids are really alive to that strangeness and wonder, right? So they're interested in questions like, why does the world exist at all? Or, you know, a child recently um, asked me, well, like, you know, if God created the world, who created God? Um, they've just got these like big, deep questions that lead them to sort of marvel at the world. And, and I think a lot of adults were once like that, and then they got caught up in their job or their hobbies, their other practical concerns, and they leave that kind of um, wonder behind. And so I hope that the book will help, will help some people recapture that. Yeah, I was reading, when I was reading your book, I, I was thinking about the crisis of democracy in America. We did a show with Monica Guzman, a Better Angels activist about having fearlessly curious conversations, people with different opinions, all sorts of stories in the, the, the media today about books being banned, a debut graphic memoir becoming the most banned book in the country, some kids starting banned book clubs. Do you think that kids can help us out of our current crisis? Maybe not your six or nine-year-old, but certainly teenagers help us begin talking to one another again? So I think that, um, I think the answer is yes. I don't know that it's a short-term fix, but something I would really love to see happen is for like philosophical conversation to become part of a grade school education because if we could get people um accustomed when they're young to having uh civil conversations about um uh really like complicated and fraught issues about which we deeply disagree then i think we'd be better off as a society i just taught a class um, which was about abortion and uh, and euthanasia. And it was actually uh, for my for my law students. It was a really wonderful experience, because um, you know we had a wide range of opinions in the room, but we set the norm very early on that um, we're gonna 
uh, talk to each other um, with respect and we're going to give each other the benefit of the doubt. And we're really going to listen and we're going to challenge our own views as much as we challenge each other's views. And, and the real goal here is not to argue someone into submission. Um, it's to, to just understand each other better and to understand these issues better. And uh, and I was really proud of my law students for rising to the occasion, but I, I think it'd be really wonderful if that was part of um, the kind of a basic education we started when children are young, so they become uh, accustomed to talking to talking to each other that way. I know you you clerk for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? Yes, and uh, of course she's in the headlines today in terms of this Roe versus Wade issue. Newsweek reports that uh, her warning about this has come true. I know you learned quite a lot from uh, RBG, not just in legal terms, but how to be a good parent, how to be a good spouse. What did you learn from her and how can she help us? Uh, it's a shame. I don't, she obviously never got to meet your kids. I know she was quite a good parent. What are the lessons that a, um, a wise woman like that have for us in our current situation? Actually, she I actually she did get to meet my kids just um, oh, good. just maybe just maybe just maybe a year before she passed away. She held a reunion. She was so lovely. She had hundreds of clerks by that point, and you know she spent the whole afternoon just meeting people's families. Um, she, uh, you know, one of the lessons that she shared that I pass along in the book is she had a really famously successful uh, partnership with her husband Marty, who was a very uh, prominent tax attorney. Many people thought he was the, the best tax attorney in the United States. And, um, but, but he really, um, you know, stood in the background a lot and supported her career. And, um, and, uh, and, you know, a lot of people had sort of questions about what made their marriage successful. And the advice she always would always give stuck with me. She said, in every good marriage, it pays to be a little deaf. And what she means is, you know, you don't have to respond to every slight. Um, you know, sometimes you just pretend you didn't hear uh, or you overlook things and you move on. And, and actually, I think that really shaped who she was on the Supreme Court. She had a famous uh, friendship with Justice Scalia. And I think maintaining. Uh, yeah, I was thinking that. I mean, maybe not only being a good spouse and parent and child, but also a friend. We all need to learn to be a little bit deaf, right? I think that's absolutely right. I think that it helped her um, maintain good relationships, and that and that helped her. I think people often miss this, they, but I think that actually helped her accomplish more in her time at the court than she would have been had she had she would have been able to had she had an antagonistic relationship with her colleagues. Well, Scott Hershevitz, the author of Nasty British and Short, I think lots of children are wanna are gonna wanna become your child. You're gonna grow your family. You seem to be at least a, a good parent, although I'm sure you have your moments. Uh, well, but, uh, maybe my kids will go on Amazon and, and review. We'll find out. Well, your <laughs> kids aren't screaming in the background, but certainly it's a, it's a wonderful new book, uh, Nasty, Brutish and Short, Adventures in Philosophy with My Kids. I think the key word in that is adventures because philosophy, if it's going to be genuinely philosophical, has to be an adventure. You can't know where you're going. Uh, so congratulations on the book. Uh, what else should people be reading in early May 2022, Scott? So I've got uh, two books to recommend. One, I think, is is recently out in paperback. It's the comedian Mike Birbiglia's uh, book, The New One, which is a kind of uh, he, he had a Broadway show, which I think is on 
on Netflix, uh, wickedly funny about uh, having a child. But then the book is a delight too, even if you've seen the show, because his wife is a poet and they've kind of mixed together his uh, funny reflections on fatherhood with her poetry, sometimes about the same things that he's cracking jokes about. And it's just a kind of brilliant uh, work. And it's, it, it, it won't just make you laugh, it'll make you uh, think and see. Uh, kids and parenthood differently. So I'd recommend that. And then the other book I'd recommend is uh, is out next week. Um, I got an advanced copy of a book by, uh, by my friend Ibu Patel, who was the founder of the Interfaith Youth Corps, one of the great interfaith leaders in the United States. And uh, he's written a book called We Need to Build Field Notes for a Diverse Democracy. And it's thinking um, uh, about the ways in which our institutions are breaking down and what we need to do uh, to put them back together. And, and, and you know, after uh, the target you were setting out, how can we have more civil, civil conversations about some of the issues that divide us deeply? So uh, I'd recommend uh, we need to build uh, to everyone. We all have to introduce me. I'd love to get him on the show. Terrific. Uh, and finally, Scott Hershevitz, the author of Nasty, Brutish and Short. Um, in addition to parents and children in early May 2022, who runs the world? Who's in charge these days, Scott? Oh, well, you, you cut off my answer by saying, in addition to parents and children, I was going to say my children run my world. I'm not sure. I'm not sure who's running the rest of the world. It seems like Elon Musk decides what we think, what we think or what we're talking about lately. But uh, but, you know, my, my very local world uh, is, is still run by my kids.